0: Question: Anybody here of any enemies? We all do, right? We at least we always have Satan and his henchmen. There are people in society who are working against the very God we believe in. They are certainly enemies um, who are bent on destroying us. They are blind and held captive by Satan to do his will, and most of them. Probably don't even realize that. On social media, um, I was—we were talking about the Lord and this uh, messianic Jewish site—and I, I officially have a group of Malaysian Muslims who are bent on killing me. And I thought, praise the Lord for that—they just got to get tickets to come over. <laughs> Plus, being from Chicago, I've heard that plenty of times. You know, I'm like, man, people really don't like Christians, you know. Um, they think they're doing right, but they don't realize they're an enemy of the Lord and an enemy of the believer. So how do we deal with that? But even more so this morning, um, you've got to look at Jesus' day in this context. The Jewish people had a lot of enemies. Their enemy was the Romans. Now, I want you to picture for a minute, if you can, Picture, I know it might be hard to picture this, but picture a corrupt government. <laughs> what do you, oh, so you know about the Roman Empire apparently? <laughs> I'm just kidding. The, you know, it's hard to imagine, I know, but the Romans were also very corrupt. They, they charged outrageous taxes, unlike anything we've ever experienced. They, destroyed those who disagreed with them by crucifying them or having them fight gladiators or lions or bears or jaguars. They were going into Israel and they were changing the culture and they were changing tradition. We're pretty familiar with that. They were barbaric, murderous. They loved to enslave people. They mocked God. They mocked God's people. They were bullies. Just to kind of quickly summarize the Roman government of that day. So how do you function in a government in a world like that? We're going to get into that a little bit. But I want to focus this morning not as much on the big quote-unquote enemies. I know it's hard to call people enemies. I get it. Instead... Do you have any enemies who you often interact with? Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a difficult family member. Maybe it's a bothersome neighbor. How are we to deal with those people that we're ultimately called to love? So that's what we're looking at in this context this morning. But before we do, let's pray and then get started and dive right in. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your word this morning, that it would be a time, even though I'm speaking this morning, it would be a time for me and for us where we would be directed by you, that you would conform our minds and our hearts into the image of your son Jesus more and more. Father, we know we have a lot of work ahead of us to become like Christ. So help us to evaluate properly and rightly your word, and then our hearts this morning and our minds. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Matthew 5, starting at verse 43, says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles I mean, anybody in here, they do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So let's dig into this. Looking at verse 43. I thought, by the way, I thought this was going to be an easy sermon, because I've read this about 4,000 times, maybe 4,200 times before. And then I started thinking about it, and then I thought, God, I can't preach this sermon. I don't do that well in this area. Generally, I do decent at it, but man, I got a lot of work. So I felt really convicted on this passage this morning. But, Nonetheless, we dig into it. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And I started thinking, so where did did they hear that said? So if you have your Bible, open up to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. We're going to look at two passages for this part. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Let's get inside the Jewish mind a little bit here that Jesus is speaking to. Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So I could just see it here, they thought, ah. So it doesn't matter about the... Go- you know You know, you justify certain things. You justify the Bible, right? Some of us are really good at that. I can see them saying, you know, all right, I've got to love my neighbor, but, but it doesn't say in this particular passage that I have to love the Gentiles. So it really doesn't matter if I love them as long as I love my neighbor. And the Hebrew word for neighbor is my friend or my companion or my fellow. The Jews, okay, I've got to love the Jews. I've got to love my own people. But the Gentiles who treat me poorly... Not so much. They, have, they had a great way of justifying that. And to see an evidence of this look, at this, look at David in Psalm 139, verse 21 through 24. Now, if you have your Bibles, definitely open up to this one. This is very fascinating. Psalm 139, verse 21 through 24. So this sentiment comes, you can see it in David's life. And this really shocked me when I read this. Here's what David says. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me into the way everlasting. Dave, what is David saying here? God, I have hated, I've despised, I disdain those who hate you. I hate them the same way. I hate these people. Look at my heart. It's pure. And we're sitting here as Christians thinking, well, that's crazy, David. You know, shouldn't you be saying in your heart, Boy, I got to really work on that one because I really hate people. No, David, this belief of, oh, I got to love the Jewish people, but the Gentiles, it doesn't matter as much. You can see that right there. God, I have hated them with utter disdain. And he's quite happy With that fact before the Lord. He has a clear conscience. Assumingly before the Lord on this. Now. Before we throw David under the bus. I feel that we have. Kind of a similar thing that we do. Like David. With justifying scripture don't we. Even in this passage. In Matthew. I remember having to work through this whole. Yeah but I can hate so and so. Because technically. He isn't my neighbor. He lives two doors down from me. That's what the Holy Spirit said, guys. The same thing. (laughs) Core horn. No, the Holy Spirit said, come on, Jeff, you know better than that. I had a neighbor, um, and I think I've shared this before. My family's heard this every week for the past, Micah, how old are you? 20 years. Dave, the torturer, my neighbor, who used to, the adult when I was in junior high, used to drag me in his basement. And he would torture me and hold guns and knives up to me. And he'd handcuff me to the wall. And he'd try to terrify me and abuse me and hit me with things. And then after an hour, he'd say, Now, if you tell anybody, I'll kill you and your family. So guess what I, as a junior hire, didn't do? I didn't tell anybody. Today, of course, I would have called the police right away. But back then, I'm like, Well, I don't want to die, and I don't want my. Guess what would happen a month later? Here comes Dave. Hey, come here. Ugh, dang it. It's like Scotty Farkas. And he would force me to go in his basement. And he would torture me and hold knives and hold guns up to me and bows and arrows. You name Swords, you name it. And then after he terrified me for a little bit, he let me go. And the third time he tried to do it. But I knocked him out. So that was it for him. He didn't do that anymore. Well, that's not what the passage is teaching. <laughs> but I, I thought, surely, Lord, I could take a little bit of revenge on this guy. He really deserves it. Now... Um, I'm so thankful God gave this passage. Imagine if God said, Go ahead and take revenge on whoever you get mad at. Can you you imagine what kind of world we would live in? You know, it'd be like the movie The Purge every day around here. So, with David, you may not know what the movie The Purge is. Don't watch the movie The Purge. It's basically a day where you get to do whatever you want and there's no, you don't have to pay for any crime at all. Anyhow, David, we can see how he came up with this. God does hate certain people. But the questions are, What does hate mean? And does God have that prerogative to hate certain people? Some examples of this would be in Malachi 1, verse 2 and 3, and in Romans 9, verse 12 through 13. I put them up here if you want to write them down and look them up later. In these passages, the Lord says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. For example, in, this, in those passages, this hate is defined as a hate that is comparative and is based on God's prerogative to choose to bless whom he chooses to bless. He loved Jacob in the sense, comparatively speaking, Jacob received the blessing. Esau he has hated, meaning he has looked over Esau and hasn't given him the same blessing that he gave to Jacob. Comparatively, God hated Jacob, Esau, and loved Jacob. There are many cases in the Bible, particularly in Romans, where God chooses to bless a certain person, but chooses not to bless another one. So comparatively, we could say there are some that God, by way of comparison, hates, um, in a sense. And that's when you hear a passage like Jesus, where he taught Whoever does not hate his father and mother, sister and brother, is not worthy to be my disciple. Remember that passage? He is not saying, go and prove your hatred for your parents and your family. What he is saying is, by way of comparison, your love for me should be so passionate that, comparatively speaking, it's like you hate your parents. In other words, he takes priority, and your parents don't get the same priority as the Lord does. Shelley, I love someone more than I love Shelley, and that is Jesus. I love Jesus more than I love Shelley. By way of comparison, he gets my best time of the day. I love to go down in the morning with a cup of coffee, and I love to pray because I got a lot of drama that I usually cause myself, and I love to read scripture, and he gets the cream of the crop of the day. Shelley sometimes gets some of those leftovers. So comparatively speaking, one can make a case that maybe he's kind of hateful towards Shelly because he's all about Jesus. You know what I mean? Right, Shelly? But would you rather have it any other way?
1: <laughs> oh,
0: man. I don't know what that meant, Shelley. <laughs> all right. Secondly, God has the right to render judgments and He has a right to render preference. God has also set up authority, like the governments and the courts, to judge. But the question probably in your head is, what if the government's corrupt? What if the courts corrupt, which it is? More on that later on. And By the way, God not only has the right to judge, but he also causes the rain to fall on both the righteous and evil, doesn't he? And he gives all of us time to repent and to come to him. He is very generous, very patient, but he's not that way indefinitely. He gave Pharaoh time to change his mind, but there was a point where Pharaoh was no longer able to change his mind, and judgment came down on Pharaoh. But until that point, God was very patient. With Pharaoh. So what is our right? What has God called us to do? When someone treats us poorly, what is our response to be? Do we have a right to revenge or a right to vengeance or a right to judgment? What about a right to hate them back and show them how it feels to have the shoe on the other foot? What are we called to? We're called to obey God. And here is what he says to do in verse 44. It says this. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In other words, who is our neighbor that we are to love? It is everyone. Everyone is that neighbor. When he says love your neighbor as yourself, that includes everyone. Even that guy Dave. We have a high calling that the Lord wants us to rise up to. We are called to live a risen up, resurrected, higher life than those who are controlled by their flesh. This is not a new teaching. God has always called his people to rise up and do better. Look at Proverbs 25 verse 21 for a moment. Proverbs 25, verse 21 says this. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The goal is not to burn them, Okay, by the way. The goal is to bless those who treat you poorly. That person who Cuts you off. Let them have the space in traffic. That would be a good illustration for today on that. So God has called his people to a higher standard. Jesus isn't just fire insurance. He is a lifestyle and an identity. So why do we have such a hard time applying this passage, living this passage out? I was thinking a lot about that, and I think one there's a few reasons. One reason is often we think that our situation is unique. Yeah, Lord, but you don't know my situation. You didn't have an Uncle Harry. I do, though, you know. We think our situation is unique. Or, another reason why it's so difficult is because we're arrogant. We think we know better than the all-wise, all-knowing God. Or, we think that our way is better. You know, you know anybody, you have anybody in your family who likes to tweak things? You know, no matter what you say, hey, here's a good idea, let's do this. They always got to fix it. They always have a better idea, you know. We do that with God. God says do this. We're like, yeah, Lord, but if I'm mean to him, maybe that will really teach him a lesson, you know. I struggle with that sometimes. And third one, I think sometimes we're lazy. We believe we're good enough and we don't need to grow. Um, We think, eh, We're decent Christian people, but our standard's too low. And we know this. We know our standard is Christlikeness, but we settle for mediocrity, what the Lord calls lukewarm. And if you read Revelation, he likes to spit lukewarm things out of his mouth. So sometimes our laziness may stop us from applying and doing what he has commanded us to do. At least that is in my life. So what helps me to realize um, that God is all What helps me to to deal with these temptations? Sometimes someone gets me mad and I want to lash out at them. But what helps me is I start to think about God's character. I remember God is all-knowing. He sees this situation. God is all-powerful. He is able to take care of me. He is able at any time to step in and deal with the situation. And God is involved. He is involved in my life. And at any point, when he sees fit, he will deal with whatever he needs to deal with. When I was in Bible college, there were some guys who drove me nuts. And what's really funny to me is this. J.D. became their RA. So he got to deal with them on a daily basis. And I'm like, oh, man, J.D., where do you get yourself? But these guys were really pains in the neck, let me tell you. They would... um, no, they had drinking parties when, when you weren't supposed to drink at the college. you sign your name to it. Uh, they were really gross, uh, vulgar. Uh, they would break rules just to see what people would do. And I had some authority, so I would have to bust them at times, which wasn't fun. I didn't like that. I liked to enjoy my time. And um, they were belittling the teachers, and they were belittling the people. And uh, there was a guy once who I just got so fed up with him in music class. I said, meet me in the bathroom. And so he and I went in the bathroom, and he's about a foot and a half taller than me. And I said, why are you at Moody? And he said, I'm here to be a pastor. I said, you'd be a lousy pastor acting like you act. And uh, I said, but I'm going to pray for you. And I was so mad. And old flesh Corhorn would have acted differently. But I'm like, oh, God's called me to be better than that. So I, I said, I'm going to pray for you. And I went to my dorm that right away after that class and I got on my knees and I prayed for this guy and I prayed for him every day for months and uh, when I look at his Facebook today he is a solid Christian following Christ and he is a pastor and I ran into him at a conference with a bunch of teens once and he had a light on his face he wasn't mean to me anymore and uh, I thought praise the Lord it works God you actually mean what you say in your words you know but I had to, I've had to do this as well where I'm like, Lord, I want to take revenge. I want to you know, give him a free facelift, but you know, I'm going to follow you in this. Now, Jesus, in verse 45 through 48, Jesus gives us the reasons why. Why should we pray for those who persecute us? Why should we love our enemies? Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rains on the just and the unjust god's character is always has always been one of grace he's always been a generous patient and often kind to both good people and evil people we know this we see this second peter 3:9 says he is patient Towards us, towards you. He wishes that none would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. I'm not sure if the word you there is referring to Christians, to God's elect, or if it's referring to the whole world in general. I don't know for sure. But I know for sure that all of those people I just mentioned probably drive God crazy half the time. (laughs) You know, all of these people got issues. God is patient towards us, not wanting any to perish but that all would come to life. His character isn't quick to anger. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. Sometime read 1 Corinthians 13 or Galatians 5 and you will see God's character, what love looks like, what what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. That is what God, that is how God treats us. For example, we all sin, right? If he were to do away with evil, sinful people, we would all be destroyed, wouldn't we? We get mad at those drivers, and of course, most people except for myself are bad drivers. But I remember very often that if God was to judge that driver, I would need to be judged as well. (laughs) You know, we're all sinners, and God is patient with us all. That's his character. And it's not like you earn your salvation by being patient with people. That's not what the passage is teaching. What the passage is teaching is, we represent, as Christians, we represent our family. We're a part of his kingdom. We're God's people. We're God's children. We're kingdom people. So, if we want to be sons of our Father in heaven, if we want to represent him well, we act like our Father wants us to act. So we may need to work on this. And second, because we are called to rise up And be different. Today, there's a lot of tension in the in society. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed this at all? There are literally attack groups. I told you about the uh, Malaysian Muslims. Um, There are groups bent on canceling one another. It's like an. I like to. I'm going to name it. I'm going to call it eraser culture. They like to erase everybody doesn't agree with them. There's things called tribes in sociology. Um, you, may re- you may have heard the phrase, these are my safe people. People need safe places everywhere today. You can't even have someone come in who disagrees to a college campus without everybody freaking out. People can't even interact with those who disagree with them any longer. They can't handle differences of opinion anymore. So they lash out and they destroy Yet as Christ followers, we are called to be engaged to some degree in this world. We can't hide from the world. That's not what we're called to. We can't be lights if we're hidden under a bushel. We need to somehow engage this very challenging culture that we're in. We cannot depend on Ben Shapiro to do all the speaking for the conservative or the Christian or whatever the case is. He is not the light of the world. He doesn't know Christ, but we do. And we're to be engaging our culture, until we're in the casket. That's what we're called to do. So, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, your people or your safe people, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors, obviously, they sold out to Rome. They were hated by the Jewish people. Most of them were Jewish people, and they were despised because they were sellouts to the government. Verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Probably the best way to take the word Gentiles here are the dirty pagans. Do not even the worldly, dirty people, the dirty, godless, pork-eating Gentiles. They do the same. In other words, the Lord's like, wow, you love those who love you. Whoop-de-doo. Everybody does that. There's nothing impressive about that. We're called to be better than that. Verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, you read commentaries on this, and there's some wimpy commentators out there. Well, it doesn't mean perfect. You know, it's almost more of a, more of a commentary on their own personal sin lives or whatever the case is. But the word here is to be perfect. God has called us To be perfect, to be just like Jesus, just like our Heavenly Father who is perfect. James 2.10 says, if we keep the whole law, yet stumble in one part of it, we are guilty of breaking all of it, which of course we all have. And that's, by the way, dealing with the same issue here of partiality. Here Jesus is setting the standard. Anybody here a, a manager of anything? If you've ever managed and led a company or people, raise your hand. I'm not going to call on you, don't worry. All right, Don, can you answer the no, skid? <laughs> Managers have to set the. St- when you do an evaluation, you can't just say, oh, you're doing mediocre and all these things, oh, that's all we want. No, as a manager, you set the expectation, you set the bar, here is where we need you to be at. And if the person falls short of that, Here are some steps you need to take to get to that level, right? That's what a good manager does, right? Um, That's what he is doing here. He is setting the standard. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Because he is holy, he cannot and will not say, Oh, shucks, Just, uh, just, just be a little bit better than Charles Manson. You know? No, he can't say that. His standard, which he met, is perfection in this area. There's perfection here. In other words, there's always something for you to work on and for me to work on. We are to be just like Christ Jesus here. There is not one of us in this room today that could say to the Lord, who is perfect, I'm pretty much like Jesus in this area. Anybody want to raise their hand and say they are? No. No. Because then I'd say you were prideful. <laughs> All of us need to grow in this passage. And what example did Jesus set was the cross. When he died on that cross, people made fun of him, people mistreated him, people abused him. And what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He died for them while they were his enemies. So, a couple questions. And this is, you could write these down and in your notes if you want to. Question number one for reflection and application this week. Number one, why is it so difficult for you to apply this clear and simple teaching here? Number two, what characteristic of God helps you to apply this teaching? For me, it's his power. It's his knowing. It's his involvement and his love for me that helps me with this passage. Number three, what steps do you need to take to become perfect in this area? Maybe you need to die to yourself and to your agenda. Just brainstorming with you. And then some challenges for this week. Challenge number one, make a list of your enemies. I have a little pink book at home that I list those who hate me, who treat me poorly. None of you are on that list. (laughs) That's my prayer list. I pray for those people. I want God to do an amazing work in them because I'm sick of them bothering me. (laughs) So make a list of your enemies and start praying for them. Number two, choose to love them. Love is an action. You want to know how to love them? Go read 1 Corinthians 13. Evaluate yourself compared to it. Number three, This week, brainstorm ways to bless the person you'd rather punch. (laughs) And do one blessing on them. Number four, grow past your flesh. Learn how to respond to a sudden attack from an enemy. What natural response do you need to grow in? Is it slander? Is it a defensive outburst? What does your flesh usually respond by doing in a way that is not appropriate to being a child of God? Go work on it. Number five, grow in your theology. Grab a book about God's character and get more familiar with it. A good book I am going through is Christian Beliefs by Wayne Grudem to refresh myself on the character of God. And yes, I've heard it all before, but I need to be refreshed because I forget that my mind gets full of all these different things. Good book to refresh yourself by Wayne Grudem. Another is The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Great book. On recalibrating your theology. Another great one is Walking as Jesus Walks by Dan Spader. Long devotional type book that'll help you really understand and squeeze the knowledge of Christ like a sponge. And another one is The Knowledge of the Holy by A. W. Tozer. I read that once on a beach in Chicago, and I cannot, I was freezing cold. I couldn't put that book down because I was finding out the Lord is so different than I am, and it was intriguing, and I couldn't put it down. Number six, learn about who you actually are in Christ, who your identity is, and start living out that identity. There's some good books here, too. One of us pastors can help you. Uh, There's a resource rack right back there that can help you get calibrated in that direction. There's a good author named Neil Anderson who does a book, Victory Over the Darkness. That's a good book on who you are in Christ as well. That'll help you grow in who you are and your understanding of your identity. Number seven, get in a small group. In your bulletin is a list of small groups. Get in a small group and grow with people and ask them to help you. During the prayer time, say something like, Man am I mad at man, am I outbursting at my wife these days? I need some prayer because I need to grow up spiritually. Something like that. That's awesome to share in a small group. A small group will pray for you, and then next week they'll ask you how to go. Man, I need prayer for my attitude, or say I did better, you know. Um, So get in a small group and grow. And eight, grab a coffee alone this week and review this message. Review these challenge points and figure out, Lord, what do you want me to focus on this week? We all need to grow in this area, especially myself. So let's get at it so that we can be sons of our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, you know that we have work to do. Sometimes we can be discouraged or or walk in shame, but you don't want us to do that either. We can't walk in shame because we're more than conquerors in Christ and you are so gracious with us. You call us not to walk in shame, but you call us to run to you when we're in shame, when we're convicted, when we realize we sin. You don't want us to self-flagellate or to hang our heads. You want us to boldly approach the throne. So help us boldly approach the throne in this area. We come to you and say, Lord, we're not very good at this. And because of that, our light is not pure and we are not a good reflection of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church and as individuals to grow in our love for enemies. Help us to grow in praying and caring and blessing those we rather punch, Lord. Father, I pray that our church would be different than the world. That we would represent you well. Without compromise, without arrogance, and without laziness. And Father, if there's anyone here who does not know Christ, or who has sin that they just need to unload to you this morning, I pray that you would help them to trust you, and take care of their business, and get right with you, Lord.